Think about the things you did right after waking up this morning. Turned off your alarm, unlocked your phone and checked your email, opened your bedroom door, walked to the kitchen, and set a pot of coffee to roasting. You've probably never really thought much about it, especially not bleary-eyed before work, but every one of those things has some form of a user interface. Now that sounds weird, user interface, because you usually really only hear it in terms of computers, but it really just refers to things that allow humans, the users, to interact with a thing, like say a bedroom door. In other words, for your bedroom door to work well, someone had to think of a way to give it an input device. In this case, it's a door handle. Now, we've gotten pretty good at designing door handles, but there are still some that suck. Some are mounted too low or too high. Some exterior door handles have a shape that you can't grip when they're wet with rain. The door handles on my Jeep are so stiff, old people can't open them. Although, maybe that's a benefit. But I digress. The point is, someone has to think about these things door handles, what an email app should look like, how you unlock your phone, if three individual buttons are actually the best way to select sizes on a Keurig machine. I started getting really curious about this, so I called up two guys who actually think about these things for a living. Dov Rausch and Peter Heyer work for IDEO, the global design firm, and you might call them interaction designers. They think about all these things, all the user interfaces of all the things around us, and figure out how to make them better. Their goal, make sure the user experience, the overall feeling of using something, is pleasing and effective. In other words, they're designers of how your world works. I'm Kevin Dubsik, and that's today's show. Guys, I asked you about what your titles are, and it turns out it doesn't really work that way. Can you just each, you know, maybe say a little bit about, you know, what you work on and what your background is? Sure. Um, my name is Peter Heyer. I'm a portfolio director in IDEO San Francisco. I spend most of my time leading a group that's focused on media and technology. Uh, a lot of our work uh, that centers around interactive games, uh, film, television, streaming media, as well as some emerging uh, platforms is where I spend a lot of my time. At IDEO, we're all very interdisciplinary in sort of our approach, and so that's why the titles can be a little murky uh, because, you know, we all have very diverse backgrounds and then we also wear a lot of hats uh, in our day-to-day. Yeah, it makes sense. And my name is Dov Rausch and I'm also a portfolio director at IDEO. Um, I come from the film background and one of the things that I've been really looking out for is um, what I like to call immersion, which currently encompasses VR and AR and MR and other, other formats. Um, so I'm working across our portfolios here. So I work with the retail team, with the education team, with mobility, with toys and play, with our medical group, to think about how we can incorporate new forms of immersion into the work that we do. Got it. So, Dob, you worked in film. Well, so what, what movies have you worked on, for example, that people would have heard of? Well, I've worked on plenty of films that people haven't heard of, but some of the, <laughs> some of the films that um, people have heard of I worked on the um, heads-up display for uh, the first Iron Man. Um, I also worked on Avatar, doing all the screen interactions for Avatar, um, while working with the team to do all of that. Um, And then, like I said, I've worked on... So I've I've done a lot of work in science fiction, imagining what the future might look like um, and, uh, and what future products might look like and what future interactions might look like. Peter, has science fiction been kind of a reference point for you throughout your career, too? Um, as a fan, of course. Um, I think I've always appreciated and been inspired by, by science fiction as a designer because you're able to kind of look at a, a, uh, like a new world where the, where the rules are kind of true to themselves in a totally different context. Um, and it, it, it puts a perspective on our existing world 
And may I just um, cut in here? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, as, a, as someone who is designing pr- totally fictional interactions and fictional products um, <laughs> in a fictional environment, I, was to- I, I, was, I got my inspiration from the product world. I, I remember actually when working on Iron Man, the first meeting that I had with John Favreau was the very week that the iPhone, the first iPhone came out. The John Favreau, and, the, the <laughs> we director were, of that film, right? That's right, yeah. And we, were, we spent a goodly amount of time just kind of geeking out on, on the iPhone. And it was a great inspiration for us, not in terms of the actual features, but just in the way that it was set up and how simple it was. Mm-hmm. And so the simplicity and the efficiency of the interactions became, um, became actually a turning point in the design. Mm-hmm. And, so it was, and I didn't realize this until, this is part of the reason that, and how I came to IDEO, is that I didn't realize that to the extent to which science fiction pictures were inspiring to product designers, because all I could see is how I was inspired by product designers. <laughs> and so when I finally started meeting them, we had these really wonderful conversations where I felt like we were doing exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. but from two different angles. And we realized that those two sides were very inspiring. And so I, got, I never dreamed that I would actually work at a product design firm making real things. I never anticipated that. It really happened by accident, and it happened because of this beautiful sort of collision. We finally met each other and realized <laughs> yeah. how important, how much we needed each other. Yeah, so actually I want to take a step back because, you know, like I said, you know, I've been thinking a lot, you know, I want to talk to you guys. I'm thinking a lot about these sort of interaction design, user experience kind of things. Um, and what you guys are talking about is, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, the iPhone anecdote is something a lot of people can relate to. But a lot of what you guys, you know, are talking about and get really excited about are things that are kind of futuristic. But, you know, we all, everybody experiences uh, interaction design every day, right? I mean, can you talk a little bit about what interaction design, like, what do these terms mean and where are places where we're, we're you know, an everyday person is encountering these things in their lives? Interaction design can be, the, it is the most prosaic, banal thing. <laughs> it is everywhere and all around us. Every time we open up a door, we touch a doorknob, and that is an interaction. Every time we walk upstairs, that is an interaction. And so if you start to look at the world from when we interact with anything around us, especially anything that we built ourselves, that can be considered an interaction and therefore a user experience. And as you know from grabbing different kinds of doorknobs, some of those interactions are, are well-designed, and some of them are very poorly designed. In fact, some of them are downright dangerous um, <laughs> if they're not designed correctly. And in fact, I mean, I was thinking about it this morning, and I was thinking, you know, some of the inspirations that we have come from nature, and we can even think about the user experiences that we have with nature. Consider the banana, which is probably the single best packaging design that ever was and ever will be. Um, and so it, using the banana as an example where it's the packaging, the skin is both packaging, but it's designed to be opened easily. It can be slowly opened. It can be opened all at once. <laughs> it protects the banana. And then it's fully compostable when you're done with it. That's, um, that's a real inspiration for us as we create super high-tech experiences on phones or in VR or wherever else or in outer space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess I, I don't need to ask where you fall on the... Uh the pre-peeled orange debate. <laughs> Any kind of technology, whether it's a, a banana or a machine or a computer or, or what have you, that there's um, you t- 
touch it, you move it, you interact with it in some way, and it responds back with some form of feedback, and then you do something else, and then it does something else, and those kinds of interactions are, are very dialectic, and how, how well and how smooth that, um, that, that happens is a function of, 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 its, of its design. There's uh, a lot of times people get really frustrated when they're when they're working on a computer or they're interacting with a new piece of technology and they feel like they're doing it wrong, or, yeah. um, or you know people will say, oh, I'm just not good at technology or I'm just not good at that. Well, that that's a failure of the object or it's it's not a failure of the person. Yeah. So so walk me through a day in the life for you guys. I mean, I, it's hard for me to conceive of like how this how this job actually works, how this process. Um, you know, starts. What, what, what is a day at work like for you? You know, we start every project uh, looking at behavior. And the, the short story is we listen to people and look for inspiration in behavior and unmet needs, and then we build stuff around what we've learned. So an example is, you know, a few years back, we were designing a software system for bank tellers. Okay. Uh, and, you know, when you go into the bank and you talk with the teller, yep. um, I know it, I'm that really, that still exists, <laughs> um, but the experience isn't really great. And so we'll often look at behavior from a lot of different lenses. Um, so, you know, behind the counter there may be a 20-year-old uh, that's in their first professional job and they're using a terminal that is like out of the 1970s. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's uh, a bunch of, you know, tab-controlled database fields, yeah. which, you know, this, you know, this, this young person, you know, most of their devices that they use are voice-controlled or touch-controlled. You know, this, this beast doesn't even have a mouse. Um, and so it's not very human-centered at all. It's very mainframe-centered. And then, you know, you take that, and then they have to work in a very high-stress, high-pressure situation where they have to be customer-facing. Customer and so in order to understand how to improve this experience, we went, first we looked at and talked to a bunch of bank tellers. We talked to a bunch of customers. We wanted to reach out and see, you know, what is it like for people who never go to the bank? What is it like for people who only go to the bank? Mm -hmm. um, we also wanted to look at kind of analogous situations where, uh, you know, we asked ourselves, what are other places that people are in a, a high-pressure customer service-facing situation where time and accuracy are really important. And so uh, we reached out to a, a bartender and a pharmacy technician and a PBX really? uh, phone operator at a trauma hospital. Yeah, and, 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 and the intention here was like, okay, so there's, there's places elsewhere in the world where, where people are dealing with a very similar behavioral situation. Yeah. Um, and how are they dealing with it? You know, and so like what a bartender might do when he has a very complex set of, um, of, of procedures that, that he or she needs to do while maintaining a conversation with a customer, like there's tricks that bartenders have that could be of, of great advantage to that bank teller. Or yeah. there's, you know, um, you know, if you know, a PBX operator at a trauma hospital is dealing with people that are incredibly frantic, incredibly uh, in a very tough situation, and they both need to perform their duties 
and uh, kind of deal with the sort of emotional intensity of that of that of that moment as well. And so, you know, we'll bring we'll bring this diverse group of people together to sort of see, you know, what can we learn uh, from a human perspective around what it's like to be kind of in that moment, um, and what are sort of the tools or resources or things that would actually help help a person in that moment. So and then, then, so from then, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so then, yeah, so then how does this play out? I mean, you know, where did this go once you started actually getting back to the design? Yeah, so, so you know, we, from, all of the, from all of that research, we have some patterns and themes and things that we've learned about behavior, and then we start building things right away. We, and so, you know, we uh, made a bunch of paper prototypes. Um, we made a, a makeshift bank uh, that we put outside of our project space uh, here at IDEO where um, our colleagues could come by and test our, um, our HTML prototype that we could quickly iterate on. And, you know, we had some patterns and themes that we were looking to do. Um, and, you know, things around transparency of information or having, like, the right kind of the right kind of information that's persistent on screen while the, the questions that are coming up, so the sequence from the teller's standpoint felt very smooth. Um, and then so we would move in this prototyping from very quick, lightweight, rapid prototypes out of like sort of cheap, fast materials to higher and higher fidelity as we would learn more through the making. So, um, you know, first it was a paper prototype, then it was, a, it was like... Um, like a click-through prototype that we did in our little fake, fake bank, and then ultimately <laughs> we made like a, a higher-resolution HTML prototype. It still wasn't a function, the full software, but we're able to set it up in a um, like in a in the training bank um, and be able to 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 send people through it to, to get feedback. And that all of that feedback is for inspiration to really understand. Okay, are all are our assumptions about behavior? Um, uh, right and working, and are these solutions actually meeting those uh, th those un unmet needs? Um, and then what we find uh, over the course of this whole pro process is that you know we're we're looking at the needs of not just the teller, but the teller and the customer and the bank, yeah. and then our, you know the solution can meet all of those parts of the ecosystem. Um, so in the end, you know, the, it was it was faster and it was easier to use. It was it was intuitive and it. It helped with customer satisfaction, but it also helped with teller retention, um, and the transaction, the transaction accuracy saved the bank money as well as yeah. you know the the, it, the interactions themselves were forty percent faster, uh, which also saved the bank money. So like being able to think about okay, what are the needs of all of the parties of the ecosystem um, allows us to make a solution that is that is essentially human, but to all of uh, all of those. The, the, those uh, different different parties. Yeah. So actually, okay. So first of all, I have to say I appreciate you working on this because I actually vastly prefer to go into the bank and talk to a teller as opposed to the ATM machine. And in fact, I got a call from Chase Bank saying, "Hey, we've noticed that you don't use the ATMs. You know, you can deposit checks there, right?" Trying to convince me to uh, to actually use you know not even really modern technology anymore. It's 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 old technology at this point. And I, I still have not adopted it. Um, but it just, that makes me think, you know, is, is like, is human to human interaction kind of the gold standard for, for a good interaction? I think a great um, a barometer for what's a good interaction with a device is that if it's a good interaction, it should feel like a good conversation. Mm -hmm. we've, all, we've all had conversations with people that are stiff. 
We've all had conversations over the phone with, with robots. Those aren't the kind of conversations that keep us engaged. But when it flows effortlessly and um, when it's natural and intuitive, that's, that's when you know that you've got a great interaction. And that's sort of what happened with, with the iPhone, I guess, that you were talking about earlier, right, Dov? Like, uh, you know, like sort of the pinch to zoom or the way you scroll, it actually kind of feels like what you'd expect in a way. It's, it's, it's not stilted in a way that like a mouse and a keyboard sort of are inherently. Exactly. We, 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 were, we were kind of all um, blown away by how, how, how seamless it felt. And when we started to break down the interactions and the transitions, we realized that, we're, that they were shockingly simple. They were the most basic of all transitions. What was complicated and what was hard about their interaction to design it was getting it just right. Like, for example, I listened to Chuck Jones, who's a great animator who, from uh, Warner Brothers, who did uh, Wiley Coyote. Mm-hmm. And um, he said that there was, um, after Wiley Coyote falls down and, hit, and then hits the ground, there's silence. And then a certain amount of time later, there's a little puff of smoke. And <laughs> it, was, it was three seconds. And so someone asked, well, why is it three seconds? And he said, because three seconds is funny. <laughs> and, and he knew that three seconds is funny because he watched people. He watched when they laughed. And he tapped into this deep inner thing of humor, and he understood it so well that he knew exactly how long that timing needed to be. And that is the trick to a great interaction. You know, and I was getting ready for this, I was thinking about just that I remember, you know, my dad showing me how to control like old versions of Windows without a mouse, just using your keyboard only. And, you know, these interactions have changed a lot, but they're still kind of fundamentally interacting with, uh, you know, sort of stuff that I'm seeing on a 2D monitor. And one thing I've been interested in a lot is how do these interaction designs change, uh, you know, when you start talking about virtual reality or augmented reality when you're sort of interacting in real space or in 3D space. Um, do, does this have to change completely? Like, where, where are we headed with some of the new technologies that are starting to be adopted by people at large? Yeah, I was uh, actually just having a conversation about this with some friends who are working in the space of VR and AR. And we were all wondering, you know, with every new technology that comes out, there's kind of a Wild West days of, of, of experimentation. <laughs> Well, first, actually, there's kind of two phases. The first phase is porting over conventions from the previous media, and the second um, step is to start to experiment and figure out what works in this new, in this new format. And so, for example, um, like something that we take for granted, which is just the exit, like quit, how, do you, how you quit an application, yeah. um, that's something that we, we don't even think about anymore because the convention is so solid. Um, but when in VR, um, in, in particular, it's actually really difficult because in, with an absence of menus, it's kind of hard to figure out how do I get out of this thing, right? <laughs> and so <clears throat> that's where a convention from the past really doesn't port over very well at all. Um, and in fact, um, early versions of VR that most people have never even experienced um, had menus, but they were so they 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 worked so poorly that they just were eliminated and, and almost immediately. And so some of the more ridiculous and really fun and interesting um, examples of experimenting with how to do that in VR, um, there is one called the Exit Burrito. And so <laughs> in this one experience, that you, I think it was like a job simulator or something like that. Basically, no matter where you are in this, in the, in this world, it's kind of like Where's Waldo? There will, there will always be a burrito somewhere in the environment. 
and that's not too far from where you are. And so the idea is um, that you can find the burrito, you go and pick it up, and um, the burrito has, um, it says exit written in salsa on the outside of the burrito. And if you take a bite, it's on the inside of the burrito, it says, do you really want to exit? And if you take another bite, then you exit out of the, the program. So that That's was a, like a ridiculous and absurd and comedic um, solution to the lack of a convention for, an e to, for how to exit. But it shows where we're at. And, it, and I think it proves that with every new medium, it's really important to take it, um, take it for what it is and to kind of start from scratch and to really think outside the box and be open to new conventions and new ways of dealing with it. In some cases, it's uh, how, do you, how do you switch your, your mindset or your perception from being in this, from one world into the other. Um, but I think a lot of the experiments that are, that, that are going on right now with the medium do make really great experiences. But I think there's a really big oppor design opportunity on how do you get from one to the other in a way that fe that, that 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 feels good that yeah. doesn't have you tripping over your dog or your coffee table or whatever. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So I guess you know when you see a burrito that has the word exit written on it in salsa, it's kind of like that moment when you're dreaming where like you're in your childhood home, which makes sense, but then you realize that you're like talking to your brother you know, as an adult, and it sort of like makes you realize like, oh, this isn't, this isn't really happening. And it's, it's like kind of scary to imagine that VR is going to have to work sort of like dreams, because sometimes dreams are really satisfying, but sometimes they are like really jarring and you, you know, you wake up and you're breathing heavily. Sure, sure. So this is, so, you know, we're talking now about um, interacting with things that are virtual. Are there new technologies that, pr that uh, require physical interactions that are, um, you know, that are kind of interesting in your guys' minds or presenting sort of new challenges? Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, I think VR, both VR and AR currently are, are 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 technologies that are kind of begging for more for more interaction, more full-bodied interaction. And you know, I think that um, you know, largely in the past hundred years, um, we've kind of migrated from our bodies into our minds. And I think what's wonderful about um, VR in particular, and also AR is that they're taking us back down in our body, and we're starting to realize um, just how important our body is to, um, to an experience. I wanted to ask you guys about one, uh, one experience that uh, I noticed ID had been working on pretty recently, and that's um, at MoogFest 2016, I, I was watching a video online um, where you guys used play as the interface for music. That's how it was described um, in this video. Can you, can you guys talk a little bit about what that project was? Sure, sure. It was uh, it was really fun to do. <laughs> um, when we were asked to build uh, like an installation, we were thinking, you know, about what are some of the things that we kind of care the most about in this space, and we were really centered on um, creative confidence in music and play, and and really sort of curious about, you know, so much about playing music requires a level of technical proficiency or, or, or musical knowledge in a way that's very intimidating for people. And so, you know, I, I don't remember the statistic exactly, but it's something like 80% of people wish that they played music and only 8% act on it. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we were really curious about how might we uh, foster creative confidence uh, through music. Where we landed was, okay, you know, let's, 
play is something that is inherently human. It's something that we all do. It's like necessary for kind of like our life and happiness and all this. So what if what if we made play the interface for music? We did a lot of prototyping around how we might do that, and where we ended up uh, landing on these giant inflatable beach balls. I think the largest <laughs> one was like ten feet in diameter. Each of these beach balls had a, like a sensor package on top that had a nine-directional inertial sensor as well as a, a Arduino microprocessor and a, and, a, and a Wi-Fi card. So in this field of these six giant um, beach balls that were, that were strung from the ceiling, each of them knew who they were, where they were, and what they were doing. And so as people played with these giant balls, the... Um, uh, they would make music and notes. We wanted to feel like you were contributing to the the music in a way that you couldn't make a bad note, or you you know you, you couldn't make any sort of mistake, and it was, didn't necessarily preclude how many people were playing at once. Um, and so we had like an algorithmic backing track that sort of played an ambient soundscape. And so huh. when you would when you would play with each of the balloons, um, they would make a note that would uh, step in at a like tone-appropriate uh, place on the soundscape. And so what it created is kind of like two points of sound modulation. One was uh, responsive to the, uh, to, the, to the soundscape. The other one, since the, since the beach ball knew which direction it was heading, uh, it could change the note based on where you hit it. So it's almost as if there was a keyboard that was wrapped around the circumference of the beach ball. And so as people were playing it, there was such a delightful variation in the music based on how they were hitting it and how other people were, were hitting it as well. But it all matched in perfectly into the underlying soundscapes. Um, we loaded these beach balls with far more sensor capabilities than, than they probably needed. Um, but it allowed us to see in the data what kinds of interactions would be the most meaningful. Um, and we were able to test this with our friends at the Exploratorium here in San Francisco, uh, where we could have a lot of people involved. Oh, nice. Um, and to sort of see kind of what the human interaction needed to be from the people standpoint, from observation, but we could also see what... Uh, from the beach ball's point of view, how people wanted to interact with it um, and could kind of build the interaction that way. I actually kind of wanted to do like a lightning round of quick questions to wrap up here. Um, so, sh so short answers, but I want to hear, I want to hear from each of you. Um, what is the best designed interaction uh, that most people are familiar with? I'm going to stick with Dad's example of the banana. <laughs> oh, that's cheating. <laughs> Well, would it be cheating for me to say banana? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about the worst? I was thinking about one of the one of the worst design things, and it's actually one of the worst design things today is our education system. And it's not that it was it, it's exactly poorly designed. I think it's a really well designed system. It was just a system that was designed for another place and another time, and for very different needs. And so. It's, our education system is largely based on repetitive rote practice, um, and that was really appropriate for the industrial age where people had jobs where they would be doing very rote, repetitive things. And I think that now in our, in, in our, in our culture, in our society, in our economy today, 
what's really important for kids and for future workers is to be creative and innovative and to think differently. And that's not what we're teaching in schools. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually one of the, the, the things that we're working on at IDEA that we're very, very excited about is how to, how to basically redesign the educational system. I think it's, it's, it's hard to call out specific pro products that are bad design. I think no, nobody has the intention of making a bad design. I think it's like the, there can be a disconnect in a couple of different ways. Either the interaction itself could be awkward or it could be poorly executed in terms of how it's made or it cannot satisfy that unmet need. So to answer both of those questions, like well-designed products or well-designed interactions are ones that feel like an effortless transition from intent to action, and poorly designed ones are ones where there's a misalignment, either in terms of the needs not being met or uh, in terms of that, that, that dialogue between the thing and the person not being very fluid. Okay. Um, what's the thing that you have in your house that you would love if the manufacturer came to you and said, redesign this for me? Well... A remote control need, desperately needs to be redesigned. <laughs> I, I'm, I have been working in technology for so long, and I cannot figure out how to operate those things. I think um, it has something to do with either my um, my mail sorting in my uh, my like postal mail coming into my house that yeah. ends up uh, accumulating in some unruly stack. Or, uh, or it could be something about uh, kind of like streamlining my uh, grocery shopping list. <laughs> Got it. Well, I would submit for your consideration, if you guys ever want to redesign this, the fitted sheet. It's the bane of my existence. <laughs> Very good. That sounds good. Um, okay. What's, what about uh, what sort of what sci-fi movie has like the product that you would most want to, to have? You go. Uh, you know, I'd it's a. Uh, it was a terrible sh television show in the '80s, where there was this like uh, like teenage girl who used to be able to put her two fingers together and stop time for a like a particular period of of of, uh, of time and then you know do uh, fix whatever the conflict of the episode was. Uh, and it, it, what I loved, I, I think about that all the time. Where like I just need to, I just need to be able to stop time for like three minutes and then sort out whatever happened and then and then keep going. So that's that's probably it. Actually, I just thought of something. There was a show called Get Smart on when I was a kid, and I remember there was a um, there, whenever he blinked. The, the guy, the main character, he blinked, a little Polaroid would come out of his shirt pocket mm -hmm. and wh which, wh of whatever he was looking at. Mm -hmm. And I always, I always just wanted to do that just to capture memories like that, like just blink my eyes and just have mm -hmm. a photo taken. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. So that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jesse Wright Mendoza. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Eddie Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We always want to know what you think. And don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. And finally, if you want to read more about interaction design, check out our website, popularmechanics.com podcasts. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of our magazine for just $13.99 per year. I'm Kevin Dubsik. Thanks for listening.